0: Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli.
1: This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. This is guest Andrew Carter. This is guest
2: David O'Leary.
0: All right, and today we're going to be taking a look at Kiss Alive 3. So coming fresh off the revenge tour, uh, KISS once again teams up with producer Eddie Kramer, uh, calls recordings from Cleveland, Detroit, and Indianapolis to complete the Alive trilogy. Uh, And they come up with an album that I think is a very interesting snapshot in time I think it reflects where the band was at at that point and I think that the songs on Revenge in general sit very well alongside uh, some of their classic material, some of which was featured on uh, a live one and a live two, Um, but I also think that it's an incomplete snapshot in some ways. The fact that they waited so long to put out another live album uh, and there had been so many albums in between means that we... We missed out on a lot of uh, classic live Kiss songs that had been performed on multiple tours that we didn't really get a, a great documentation of uh, for posterity, unfortunately. Uh, but what are your guys' thoughts about uh, Live 3 in general?
3: It's definitely an update to their sound. I, I, I appreciate. I like the fact that they brought back old songs and redid it. I mean, they sound a lot more 80s heavy metal-ish. Um, not, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, I like that Deuce sounds, you know, um, you know, a lot brighter uh, than it does on Alive 1 and Alive. I mean, sorry, on Alive 1, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, b- and yeah, like you said, I like that they sort of update the old songs and, um, you know, everything seems to fit together. It's, uh, and it's the same sort of thing that I liked about Alive 1 and Alive 2. It is the tempos are speeded up and the distortion is put on a little thicker. You know, so it becomes, um, you know, there's some things that you kind of miss kind of the pretty overtones of certain songs or a little bit of uh, differences here and there, it becomes a little more sludgy with the live sound, you know what I mean, like a lot more um, distorted riffs are a lot, you know, stronger. Louder. Overall, it's a
0: little more compressed yeah. uh, than I think it needs to be. I don't know if that's a function of mastering or the mixing, but yeah. There was I. I think this is wasn't this the
3: first they edited digitally or or recorded digitally? Which is a lot hmm. of times what does that? You know what I mean? You lose sort of the warm room tones and things like that when you do things digitally. So, <laughs> and the and the audience. I mean to be and my only downside to any of this is the audience sounds completely canned it sounds like a laugh track from a TV
0: show. You know what I mean? A lot of it. The- it sounds like they're performing in front of the Roman Colosseum. <laughs> right, yeah, right? exactly. It's all <laughs> like-
3: it's- You know,
0: it, I think you get into this thing, obviously you can't have an audience that's less enthusiastic or less numerous sounding than Kiss Alive 1 or Alive 2. So it's it's the same problem that James Bond movies have, right? Each one has to be a little bit bigger than the mm-hmm. last one.
3: Right, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, a, that's just a, my general thoughts. I mean, they're all, you know, there's not a stinker on here. Uh, in terms of songs, so it's
2: great. Well, you no, know, I agree. Uh, you know, I, Deuce is probably one of my, probably my favorite version, live version of Deuce is from a live, live three. But you know, I look at, I look at the live albums for what they really are. There's a magical element that I still remember and I hold in my heart as a kid when I first picked up a live. And then obviously a live two was a little different experience for me, having gone to those those shows and and had that thought in my head of, wait a minute they didn't ever play King of the Night's Own World or Hard Luck Woman or you know, Tomorrow and Tonight. So there's a, you know, there's a little bit of, you start to pull the beard off of Santa and the mall a little bit element there. <laughs> and you hear all the Pauls doing the background vocals, you know like three or four Pauls. Right. A live three is no different than uh, that. I know, it, you know, it's like, I think we we're talking about a second ago, I want you from from Tokyo, that's on a live two. Look, is it live? Yeah, they're probably standing there at the Budokan during sound check running through the song with Eddie Kramer at the console recording, and then they dub in, you know, all, all that audience, you know, uh, that audience loop. You know, so I, I do kind of, I, I, I try to marry the two together, the, the child and me, the magical element of KISS that I fell in love with, with the adult, you know, the, the critically thinking uh, guy that goes, yeah, this is not as live as, as you think it is, and there's certainly some entertainment value to that, but I get the essence of what they're trying to put out there and what they're trying to do. And certainly I know that Kiss is not the only band that does that. You can go down a list of live albums that we all probably grew up with and love. And when you look, you really look into it, you find out they're not as live as you thought they were, but it's still, the band is still playing they still capture the energy and they're still putting out there projecting what you perceive in your imagination to be KISS or whatever that band may be but in this case KISS what they are live on stage when you're imagining them and and I think they do a pretty damn good job with a with live with a live three I think it's very much of its time and 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 I enjoy most of the album still to this day I can listen to it.
3: Yeah just a weird aside the Peter Gabriel live album actually says there are songs on here that are not actually live you know that we <laughs> of them, you know I mean they, they just come right <laughs> out and say it.
2: Well, I like that yeah. honesty
0: right right kind of like the Marilyn Manson autobiography where he says some of this isn't true
2: right yeah you know? yeah but but does that really take away from the experience no no, for, no. It's, it, it doesn't for me
3: live albums in many cases are like almost like greatest hits packages uh you sure. know what I mean and that's that's actually one of the reasons why this is one of the I couldn't wait to purchase this when I saw it
1: I I got this one right around when it came out um uh, you know just carrying over from the end of uh our discussion last week about revenge. I missed this tour because it didn't play the Hartford Market and I didn't listen to the rock radio markets, neither Worcester, Mass or New York. So I didn't even know the tour was happening because I could have gone. So this was the next best thing. And I think that along with being kind of a greatest, uh, sort of an updated greatest hits package, it's also a souvenir from the tour if you got, if you did get to go. And it's sort of a next best thing if you didn't. And so I, I play. I, I played this a lot when I got it. I think um, because it's so upbeat and there's just no real filler on it. I think I ended up buying it on cassette at the time, so I could play it in the car and in the Walkman, like when I was at the gym or when I was jogging, because it was uh, just good for all of those things. Um, it just. I. I. In. Um, you know, to echo what was said um, a couple of people earlier, the. Updated heavy metal versions of "Deuce," "I Was Made for Loving You," and "Detroit Rock City." I just love all three. I mean, they're all brilliant songs, but just adding the layers of muscle to essentially an early sludgy rock song, a disco tune, and what I consider to be their best song um, were just really, really three wonderful things to put into this record. Um, and uh, you know, the only thing that ever drove me nuts about this is be- that. This this record was absolutely a product of its time, in that it was um, deliberately edited down so that it fit on a single compact disc. so They could sell it as a single album, and that cost them things that they could have otherwise put on the record. Uh, but you know that's not. It didn't keep me from playing it over and over again. And again, it was um, um, it was and, it's, and as far as you know maybe you know being fixes here and there or whatever i think by that time yeah i was in my early 20s and i knew well enough that a live album generally wasn't fully live mo- almost all of the time the one album that i can remember of this era where it actually said on the cover we have made no fixes to this recording whatsoever was decade of aggression by slayer mm. yeah
2: mm. right
1: so yeah big thumbs up for i, I uh, this i i, I um played I played the heck out of this record in 1993 when it came out and there are still half a dozen songs from this that are on my permanent 1000 song um you know cardio random playlist that I need when I gotta run five miles yeah yeah
4: I I think we mentioned uh you know the the compression thing the mix to me sort of Put me off at first. I thought, well, this thing sounds huge, but it sounds so huge that I can't really decipher what's going on. Um, you know, yeah. but you know, I think you know, if there's a downside to the thing, it's it's just the mix and the way it's presented. But you know, it still sounds like a live show in a lot of ways, and funny too. We mentioned about you know how the audience is obviously you know it sounds like a canned audience when you consider the fact that this is probably one of their least uh, attended tours. I mean, there was basically sometimes half the size, half the audience you'd expect in a show, anyways. Um, so no wonder they had to sort of bolster that uh, in the presentation of this record. Um, but, you know, for also for me, I think it was cool to have, you know, a live version of songs from the 80s catalog that we didn't have. Uh, because for me, around the time that this record came out, I was just getting into starting a, a Kiss tribute band. And we were thinking, what are we going to play? Are we going to play, you know, just the makeup stuff and do some 80s stuff? You know, this to me, songs like you know, lick it up. Um, you know, those sort of things in you know, Heaven's on Fire, if you're going to cover those songs, these are great versions of the songs to cover. Um, they're, they're great arrangements. Uh, but I think the takeaway, too, for me with this record is I'm reminded between you know, last week's discussion about revenge and uh, this record of how great a guitar player, Bruce Kulick, really is. I and mean, he's really pleased. Mm-hmm. He plays for the song, he, he's got a great feel. Um, you know, he will do the tip of the hat to classic solos that, that like on Deuce. Um, he'll put his own spin on it in a way that's that is respectful but also putting in his flavor in terms of his guitar playing which you know i i don't, I don't think you get that from a vinnie vincent or a mark st john you know right um, but, you know, I, I was just happy that there was a live three and they that they completed the trilogy and um funny point too i was listening to it this week and i thought why does this this reminds me of something there's another live record
0: Foghat okay, uh-huh. live, right?
4: So I wonder where are they, you know, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, the cover probably does owe a bit to the uh, Foghat yeah. live cover. Now that now that I see them side by side. Yeah,
4: but you know we'll get into the songs and discuss some of the you know the uh, the issues and, and and takeaways. But I was just glad they they released in a live three and you know, we could hear some you know live versions of songs that um, we had seen in concert over the last you know you know five to seven years that um, you know we, we weren't we didn't have on on a live disc from Kiss.
0: Yeah. All right, so let's go through track by track. Um, the opening track. You know what shocked me the most about this is that I didn't hear the intro. You wanted the best, you got the best, the hottest. I, I, I could swear to God if somebody had, had like put a gun to my head and asked me if that was there, I would have said yes, but I hadn't heard it in a while and it's not there. Did KISS actually drop that live during Hot in the Shade and Revenge or was it just, it was they just cut it off from the, the beginning?
2: I I don't know if it was there. That's a good point, Dave, because you know I'm thinking now on the top of my head some of the shows I do have. And then I think of the video of some of those shows from some of those tours that I have, the Pro Shot videos, and I don't think I, I I can remember an instance where the actual announcement was there. It's more like that 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 you know that that rumble they had going on there. Yeah, you know, the, that, low, yeah,
0: end the low end synth thing. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah I
1: love cool. the drone. I love that drone. They still use it now. Uh and it's just, for me, that is like, that is, th- that drone I, uh, is for me like better than almost any other intro tape because it just, it, it warms your ears up. You know, what coming, you know what's coming. It's just the perfect tone. I don't know, for whatever reason, like the drone works for me. I don't know if they actually dropped the intro or not, but um, I know now it's drone and intro, you know, post makeup. But um, this one, I don't think this was the first tour where they used the drone. Uh, it, it, it picked up at some point in the 80s. I can't remember which tour it was. But... Yeah, I, I think it was Hot
0: in the okay. Shade. Well, they used something similar on Lick It Up even, because I have bootlegs. I mean, it may not have been the exact same drone, but there was some kind of low rumbly thing happening.
1: It's it's great walk-on because it also gives the band a chance to like bang and tune and click and do whatever they need to do to make sure they're actually plugged in and ready to go and in tune without, and it doesn't really get in the way of that. And so, you know, it just... Uh, it just, uh, yeah, it just it does a nice job of just building up the tension, and it's just a, it's just a really, I love the tone.
0: Yeah, I have a question for you, Dave. So that that Kiss Alive three point five thing that you sent me, sure. the, the intro that's on there, that sort of like you know bombastic classical esque sounding thing, that was something they used on Hot in the Shade, right? When they came out with the Sphinx. Yeah, it's okay. funny
2: because I was just fighting with it. I went to go turn my iTunes off the so way I wouldn't, and I accidentally hit the space bar and a damn song started. Oh. That's very he started. I was playing in the background, but yeah, I think it was from the Hot in the Shade tour.
0: Okay. So, anyhow, Creatures of the Night, one of the great all time classic kiss openers. Sounds great here. Um, you know, it's funny because this song sort of disappeared from the set all through the time that Peter Chris got back into the band. I think because this is one of those songs that he probably couldn't really credibly have, have played live. Uh, But, you know, Eric Singer sounds great. I mean, we should mention, I think the biggest difference here is that Eric's whole approach to the drumming on Kiss Alive 3 is quite different than what he's doing these days. Now he's not playing any double bass and, uh, you know, doing a lot less fills, you know, his his playing style has sort of morphed into a, a lot closer to Peter Chris on the original KISS tunes than than he was here. Here he was playing a lot more heavier, a lot more aggressive, I'd say.
4: Yeah. Yeah, and I read um, in one of the KISS books where I think Eric said, you know, he listened to it, you know, in recent times, and he thought that, you know, if he was going to approach these songs now, he would approach them in a different way.
3: Huh, interesting. Cause this, this approach is almost, I mean, it's not thrash metal, but it approaches like the 80 speed, you know what I mean? In terms of how it's delivered and it's even faster on this live album. You know what I mean? It's a little bit, tempo's way higher. Um, and that big, you know, the awesome pick slide, you know, totally yeah. grabs you. and yeah. pulls you. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with it.
4: And it's not like, to mention that huge explosion at the beginning, you know, whether it be, know, it, I mean, it's huge <laughs> from the, the, the get-go. It's like, okay, this is a whole, this is a live kiss album. We got, you know, pick slides and huge explosions and boom. Right, go, go. yeah, exactly.
1: Kisses Everything back. does what it says on the tin, yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think it's also, this is also, again, like a very, very accurate reflection of what was going on in the times in terms of heavier music because by the time they were recording this record in 1992, you had Metallica had put the Black album out in 1991 and that elevated the heavier end of heavy metal to a, multi- to uh, you know, a diamond, multi-platinum level thing. You also had... Guns N' Roses put out the two *User Illusion* records, and they would replaced Steven Adler with Matt Sorum, who was essentially like taking a heavy metal approach to drumming on a lot of that record. So I think that that louder, thudding double bass approach um, was something that was um, that that was now becoming very, very normal, and it was something that Kiss had been doing for a decade, but there were, and there was no reason to, to you know mess with it now, but what they were able to do over Hot in the Shade and this tour was start bringing back their older songs that they'd ignored for most of the 80s and kind of take those and rework them into the current format. And yes, this is um, a great opener. And it's, uh, I think this song dropped out of set lists after Lick It Up. Um, and was largely absent for most of the rest of the eighties. I
3: swear to God, didn't they open with Creatures of the Night on Lick It Up? I mean, I yeah, but after yeah, that, I think they did. Okay, yeah. I remember one. I remember being blown away by
1: it. It went. So it big. was out by Animalize, and I don't think it came back until mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know if it was on Hot in the Shade. I don't mm-hmm. think it was. So I think this was th- th- this song had been dormant for you know four or five records before it opened this show. So that in and of itself, um, that's gonna make the old you know, that's gonna make the you know, the kiss diehards really, really happy from song one. So great choice. I mean, couldn't add a better you know, couldn't add a better song open it. Yeah, I love
3: it.
2: <laughs> I do.
3: It's one of my favorite kiss songs ever. I mean I,
2: you know. Eric is one of the stars of this album, my, my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I actually love the sound of his drums on this. I love, I love the whole, his whole double, you know, is the double kick thing. Um, yeah, as you said, you know, they've been doing it with, with the previous Eric, but I, I think they really captured it on this record and, and it was nice to see creatures come back as it, as, uh, as John said, it's one of my favorite songs. And I think they did, I didn't, they did a tremendous justice to it with this rendition. And, uh, it's, it's still one of my go-to tracks on that, especially yeah. on that album.
3: And we talk about, I mean, it brings you into the fold. It's one of those, we are all creatures of the night. Everybody who's a Kiss fan is one of us and we're one of you and, you know, so it's a perfect opener.
0: And then right in from that into uh, the first repeat of Deuce from Kiss Alive One, um, modern update, as you guys have mentioned, the, the, the current guitar tones and interpretation, but sits very comfortably alongside Creatures.
3: Yeah, it hits like it hits great. I mean, there's there's really nothing to say about it cuz it's a perfect song, but it's and and what's interesting is there is a Paul and Gene interplay in the vocals, right? To some degree. I mean,
0: well Paul comes in and does the do it. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. I can't
3: I <sighs> I love that. And it's funny because it sort of like disappeared from a lot of their stuff in the 80s. It, it's, there's, and, and, and it suddenly appeared to me. I was like, that's Paul, you know, while I was listening to it. And I was sort of like, oh, the good old days of Kiss when they, you know, work together on songs instead of presenting. So it was an interesting sort of uh, snapshot of the past, but updated for now. Um, and it just, it hits that riff. Especially when you turn it up to eleven and throw, you know, an extra layer of distortion on it and all that kind of stuff, it's just too good to be true. I mean, it's it's great.
1: Yeah, they just they nail it with this one. I think "Jeans," yeah, at the end of the song is just a perfect little addition, um, and it's also it enabled them. I guess this one, this had been resurrected on "Hot in the Shade," and I guess this also enabled them to bring back their little Motown stage move at the end of it, which. Never like which which never got unpopular, um, so th- th- that was also it was nice for them to bring back, like, you know, their signature rock back and forth in unison, uh, at the end. And so, yeah, it was just, um, yeah, there, there's just nothing they got everything about this right. I'll, I'll just go from
4: the, the guitar standpoint, um, it was cool to have a live version, um, you know, that was different from what we got on uh, Kiss Alive, um, and from the lead guitar standpoint you know, I mentioned before that, you know, around this time I was forming uh, Kiss Tribute Band, it was fun to have, like, something else in the vocabulary. Like, if I, if we were in rehearsal, if I wanted to play the solo that Bruce did on, on this version of Deuce, I could do that, you know, but I, I would never do that, you know, wearing an Ace Freely costume, you know, playing a live show, but, you know, the Kiss Tribute Band, but it was fun to have that, that option to do that, you know, it was, again, a, a tip of the hat to the past, and it's really cool, too, because with Bruce, you know, I mean, if you're, uh, he was, he really was, he was finding his tone, you know, at this time with Revenge and, and this tour. And again, he's putting his own spin on the solos and in a way that was, you know, a tip of the hat to, to what Ace would do, but it wasn't too far removed from that. Um, and it was around this time that I started to realize that, you know, we're never gonna see, you know, at this time we thought we'll never see the original lineup back together again. And we wouldn't see Ace playing with Kiss. Um, but yeah, you know, Bruce did, he really just fit right in between that in terms of being like the new guitar player for the band But covering, you know, the licks that you know the the, previous guy had Um, done—it's such a utility player in that way, and I think that comes across in this record, and particularly on this song.
2: I'd add what I would echo what Mike just said, but really, let's not forget the 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 real star to this song was uh, Ezrin's perfect, perfect bomb explosions that he managed
0: to capture kramers yeah <laughs> yes. Kramers. yes
2: yeah yeah yes. i mean yeah really i mean come on i mean can we all get a round of applause just for the sound of the explosions on that right speaks <laughs> <laughs> right in the chest right in the chance speaking
4: of which uh, i don't know if it was in the the uh the documentary that they did on the, the Bee Gees recently but i recently saw a clip This is t- specifically on explosions uh, there was a clip in the, uh, around 1980 when the Bee Gees recorded the song Tragedy, and there's an explosion in that song, right? So they're around, they're making jokes like, well, I got some dynamite in my car in the, you know, in the, in the trunk. We could bring that in. That, that's, that, that's not going to be safe. And uh, from what I saw, Barry Gibb literally goes to a microphone, cups his hand around the microphone and goes,
0: oh.
4: And supposedly that is what the explosion is on the song Tragedy from the Bee Gees. So, you know, it doesn't nearly sound as big as these explosions on Live 3, but... <laughs> Funny to think that you know they would resort. You know, that was like you know cutting edge technology back then for an explosion.
1: Gary yeah, Gibb had a set of lungs on him, so that's I mean, true. You
4: know, that is true. I mean, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. That's the thing is that that he's you know, um, chances are, um, I'd, I'd I'd love to if that's true. I'd love to hear the outtakes of him just making that noise over and over again. Because, but I bet then that, again, that somebody with a set, somebody with a set of pipes like that could probably come up with something
2: fairly good. For sure. See, okay. I could see this kind of like the cyanide life scale <laughs> more Calvin. There's there's Kramer coming out, go, gee, guys, I love what you're doing. I feel deuce. I feel creatures. I feel it. I gotta have more exposure. More exposure
0: more firepower, yeah. <laughs>
1: I, love, I love the fact, that, like jumping to Judas Priest for one second. I love the fact that the, the 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 metal troopers that are marching at the end of Metal Gods on the British Steel record—it's mm-hmm. actually somebody taking a tray of cutlery and just slamming it up and down, up, uh, up and down. Yes, <laughs> just like knives and forks.
0: like (laughs) yes it's a nice bit of uh heavy metal (laughs) fully
1: i remember i was i was like when i found that out i was like wait that's how they did it you know (laughs) know, but uh yeah it's uh it's it's all good whatever however they did it it works
0: so then we move on to i just wanna which is the first song from the revenge album and uh it's interesting because there are points on this album where the, the crowd completely disappears mm-hmm. as they're playing the song. And this is one of those songs. Um, and I think it's interesting because you can kind of compare what might've been Eddie Kramer's production approach to this song versus Bob Ezrin's. So like for instance, the breakdown when they, they do the three-part harmony thing is much less washed out and much more, you can hear the individual voices on Eddie Kramer uh, a live three version and and I like it better actually because I think if anything the Bob Ezrin thing it sounds like you're listening to a choir in a cathedral and you kind of lose the definition of the words a bit um and uh but you know I was thinking about this song and the, and the fact that they essentially don't play any songs from revenge in the set anymore with the kind of exception of of they do play God gave rock and roll to you as the closing walkout can song um And yet this is an album that's cited by the band and the fans as one of their favorite albums. But I think that if you look at these songs individually, starting with I Just Wanna, there are definite reasons why they can't play any of these songs from this album. And, you know, I'd say since about 2002, Kiss has been playing to a multi-generational audience that includes lots of little kids and they've made conscious efforts to, Tone down any of the swearing and the sexual repartee in between songs. And you just can't put a song like that has a chorus that essentially says, I just want to fuck, you know uh, in the live show when you've got f- tons of five and six year old kids there. Um, but I think it fits in great for the band at this point when they were kind of trying to be edgy. I mean, this is the point where they were making, they made a t-shirt, which is so embarrassing to talk about but it was a t-shirt that had a guy, a cartoon image of a guy (laughs) fucking a dog. And it said calling Dr. Love. And I just, you know, I've been to a million kiss concerts and events. I've never seen anybody wearing that shirt. I don't, I don't know if they sold one, one of those shirts. Like I can see the meeting where they would say like, you know, here's a crowd we haven't appealed to before the, (laughs) pro-bestiality <laughs> crowd or the crowd <laughs> yeah, that it, thinks it's there's really there's funny there. to make jokes about bestiality. This you know, like, character? what? This was an official shirt? It was an official KISS shirt, yes. And, like, it's, I think it's been scrubbed from the internet because I can't find an image <laughs> of it. Um, but no loss, believe me. It's, it's just embarrassing that one of the most iconic and creative visual bands in history was reduced to doing a shirt like this.
4: Well, I, I have no idea. You know what, in my- I'll have to check. It might be in the insert that came with the, the history book. Okay, uh, I think you're it, right. It's buried, I can't get
0: it to it right now, but either way, I think it might be there. I think it's a, a low watermark. mark. Yeah, yeah picture yeah. of the shirt. Um, but anyhow, I just want it sounds great. The only thing about the, you know, the Paul rap where he kind of goes, this song has a magic word and it goes, yeah. you know, whoop, you know, whatever. And his voice cracks. I, Ah, it's a little embarrassing. I, I like the version on Kiss Alive 3.5 that Dave sent me where, mm-hmm. you know, where he's talking to Detroit and he goes, this song has a magic word in it. That word is fuck. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, don't they change it? I mean, I'm reading, I remember reading that they actually changed it to, I just want to fun you. I mean, didn't, the, I seem to remember, like it definitely is, it definitely is vague the way that it's played. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, I don't really hear it say I don't dare to say fuck.
0: There's one version. I mean, the one time they say it right as the band kicks in, mm. they definitely say okay. fuck All Right.
3: Okay, well, yeah. it definitely sounded... I remember listening to it and feeling like that they had, like, changed it around a little bit. But, I mean, I actually like the song because it plays with the idea of forget and fuck, and you know what I mean? And that's why I came to the, you know, that's why I like Kiss, you know what I mean, is that sort of weird entendre that almost has even more meaning to it, you know what I mean, than just something is overly sexual, but I don't know. Right. Because I had heard that they had changed it, in the, in, especially on Alive 3, that they had changed it to they had totally dropped it out with Fuck,
1: but I don't know. Uh,
0: no, not, I mean, there may be a censored version yeah, I think there out there somewhere, but, but not that I've heard.
1: Yeah, I think this was, I mean, um, you know, definitely one of the best songs off Revenge. Um, I think they, they had to clean it up to put it on a live record that kids could buy. So I, I think that you know somewhere you know um, they were the industry was still a few years away from doing clean and dirty version and uncensored versions of albums, and there could have been a time when Kiss could have put out you know like like a you know curse filled version of this, but. I think, you know, they did what they, you know, ultimately, you know, like, like, you know, music business is two words and um,
0: Kiss is about music first, but they're also about business. And well, actually, it's less clean than the studio version because they actually say fuck at least once. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's but, but <laughs> there's, there's at least reasonable doubt Like if they're getting called in front of, you know, like if, if this ended up in court, there's reasonable doubt they could say, well, it's garbled, you know, uh, so I think it's, you um, you know, it, they did what they had to do to get it on the record, and you know, I'm I'm quite sure that there was you know some of these versions probably had like you know a fairly decent call and response depending on the size of the crowd. And uh, but yeah, it was also good to see the new record um, get a song so like you know placed early on you know or halfway through side one or first half of side yeah. one however it is.
2: No, I like it. I you know it's one of those songs that we talked about last week. It's uh, maybe my favorite song from Revenge. So you know, it, it fits in really well in, the, in the, this particular set. And it, it's a song, regrettably, that's out of the set list for, I think, the reason, you know, that you brought, you know, brought it before. Um, but it is, to me, it's, it's ear candy. It's an earworm. It's in my head. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be there forever. So I take my last breath. It's just one of my favorite Kiss songs. So it, it's good to have it finally on a live album
4: this was one of the standout uh you know paul songs on the revenge album and, and they played it on the tour and i'm glad they documented it you know i, I love it you know it's, it's yeah it's, it's just it's a great paul song and i'm glad you brought up that point about how the fact that you know these uh, songs for revenge are, are no longer played i mean it's really i was just having a conversation today with my sister about how great revenge is i mean from you know beginning to end, it's a great listen it's a well-produced record and it's it was one of the most you know, classicist records that they, they put out from that era and how largely ignored it is these days. What a shame.
0: You know, I found an interview with Bruce where he said that he, he's not sure what Paul and Gene and Eric may have done in terms of fixes on this album, but he knows that he only came in and fixed a few little things. Um, I have to think that one of the things they fixed is the ascending guitar line during the later verses. On, mm. this, uh, on this version of I just want to, because if you listen to the bootlegs, there's nobody playing that part. Mm. And um, now I know they did have a keyboard player yeah. on this album. Um, so, I assume, I assume he's represented on a live three. I can't really hear him very well, and hardly any of the songs.
1: Let, let me let me jump in and speak to that. I'm looking at the album credits right now. And one thing I was going to mention when it came up, and now's the time is that, yes, Derek Sherinian was the onstage keyboard player at the time. He was behind a curtain, he wasn't a credited member of the band. And he is actually listed below all of the texts. <laughs> and like, they don't even have him they go yeah. you know production manager stage manager tour manager like they have all the top guys and then all the text, and then they list Derek and um I think at least part of it was that I know this is back when synthesizers you would have to program your own patches and put them in and Kiss had tried to get Derek to just tell them you know to leave the patches with them so that way they could cut him out of the mix <laughs> so he would actually and so he, he got he was wise to that before they even tried it and so he had his little disc, which had all of his patches on it, which he would pop in and out of the keyboard as he came and went every day. So they had to keep him on the tour.
0: Interesting. Now I know I, from interviews with him, I guess one of the things that they did is he would hit like the root and the fifth of power chords and kind of double Paul's playing.
1: Yeah. He would just fill out the sound. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a very, very, his role was a very, very common man behind the curtain role for eighties and nineties bands. I mean, Ozzy's yeah. keyboard guy was on stage. Um, Um, so on and so forth. But yeah, like this, having, having a guy to help fill out the sound live, um, not an unusual thing. Now they just run tracks.
0: Right. Right. So now second song in a row from Revenge, Unholy, which, um, you know, again, can you, could they play the song today? Yeah, they probably could. They did bring it back around the Rock the Nation tour, I think, but to be honest, I think it works better as a studio cut. I think in a live situation, you're probably only going to have time for one or two truly dark, heavy Gene songs. And nothing works better than God of Thunder. And second than that, nothing works better than War Machines. And so as much as I love this song as a studio cut, I don't really miss it in the set, but I, I think it was cool to see at the time.
3: Well, Unholy is one of the songs that solidifies my staying a Kiss fan, that they could write that song and that it's that dark and it stays with sort of the Kiss that I knew and that I love. So I actually sort of miss it. I I think they did do it on their farewell tour in 2000 or something like that. I seem to really remember that, but I could be wrong when they all got back together. But I think actually now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think that's true.
0: No, I think they brought it back for the Rock the Nation okay, tour. I wanted to go see um, that as well.
3: All right, at any yeah. rate, I um, yeah, I hear, I hear exactly what you're saying. It's it's a song to me that should be considered a classic Kiss song, but I doubt will ever be considered a classic Kiss song because it came so late and sort of the catalog, you know what I mean? But um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, even if it was left off the album, I don't think I, I mean, again, No, no, I think it should have been put on the album because it's definitely, to me, one of their standout tracks for at least the last, you know, three, four previous albums. You know what I mean? Um, So I think it's definitely something that they had to do. Um, But other than that, no other, you know, again, I mean, there's nothing really to say about it because we already talked about the song last week, but, um, you know, turned up to 11 and a little more sludge on it.
1: Love the inclusion of the song here, um, and it just... Um, it you know it's it's nice to go have this back to back with I Just Wanna, and also yeah it is one of I, I think it might be the one song from Revenge that really would work in the makeup era. I think if it, if you slow the tempo down just a little bit, then you're looking at a replacement for either War Machine or God of Thunder. Um, and you know, but I think it it is I think the song from Revenge that actually would carry over, and I guess maybe for one tour it did, but it's. Um, it is, um, it's the signature Gene song pretty much from the non-makeup era, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, thumbs up.
2: Yeah, this, this one for me, I, I, I don't think it has the, the, the same impact live that it did on the album. There's just something about the way this translates in this particular format. I don't know if it's the way it was mixed, uh, I just, I don't feel the same energy that I did from the studio version. And it's usually the converse It's true with me with Kiss. Usually I prefer the live album, the live versions over the studio versions. This is one of the circumstances. I don't hate, hate it, by the way. I really, really like it. It's just to me of the entire album and we'll get to the only other song on this album, I just think it could have you know done without. And I'm not saying do without in this particular case. It's just probably the weakest song for me way it is presented on this record and I know why they probably don't do it now because if any of you guys are ever interested in this and you're nerds like me I have every one of the Rock of the Nation tour discs and and all the the variations of Unholy that they did on that tour And it just didn't translate it it might be a Tommy Thayer thing I'm not knocking his guitar playing it's just the way he plays and approaches that song it loses something I don't know you know maybe it's it's best left until Bruce Kulick comes back at some point and, and, and does a guest appearance or something. But um, but that said, this is just, it, it, it's just my, my least favorite live cut on this album.
4: Yeah, I'll just say this was the single from Revenge. So, you know, it's no wonder they played it you know in the set uh, and they include it on this record. Uh, but I agree in terms of, you know, if you had to compare the live to, to the studio, the studio version is definitely stronger and, and fuller. Um, in terms of uh, the guitar standpoint, too, I think you can tell Bruce is really still doing some guitar tone searching. Here. I think he's either using a, like a wah-wah that's sort of half, half kicked on or like a some sort of filter in the solo to make it sound sort of edgier in a way, which it, to me is cool. I mean, it, it shows that he, the, the guy cared about you know what he was doing, not only in terms of playing, but in terms of what he was sounding like and wanting to come across and what would be appropriate for the song. Um but the question I have for the group is: Is the intro to this song supposed to be a takeoff
0: of the Jaws theme? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely reminiscent of that Yeah. Okay, uh, so
4: I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Which I guess is clever because if you just started the riff, I mean, Dave, in terms of what they did later on, on you know, when they played the song in, in, in later version of the band, did they do that intro in later tours or was that excluded? Because if you just play that, you know, sort of you know root and fifth, or it's I guess it's like an octave riff that's not the strongest way to start a song. You know, maybe they need something
0: to, to sort of, you know, get from point A to point B. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know, I'd have to consult the- Okay. Yeah, the Rock Nation tapes. So then Heaven's on Fire, which is interesting to me because th- this is actually the second live version of Heaven's on Fire they put out, right? Because they took uh, from Animal Live Uncensored a version of this song and they put it out on the Huron Aid album. Um, and that version, to be honest, was a little rough vocally, especially during the chorus and the and the and the bridge. Um, this is a much smoother, slicker uh, approach to the song, and I think it works a lot better.
3: Yeah, it's definitely fine. I mean, it sounds like it does on the album to me. It doesn't sound particularly modified in any way. I mean, you know what I mean? There's no. I don't think there's anything that really changes up about it. I, I, have not, I honestly, to put it bluntly, I don't really have anything to say about it because it sounds like Heaven's on Fire. You know what I mean? And it's good.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It's 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 a good solid run through, but this is one that again they just have to. I mean, they're they're just um, this this one really hinges on the chorus, which has so so many layered vocals on it that you have to just you know play you know you have to just play this one very close to the hilt to, um, to make it work live and they do that so and it's um it's the only song from Animal Eyes oddly enough that makes it to this whole thing but you know if you're only going to have one it's got to be this one.
2: No I agree I mean I I like the song I always have liked the song um I I like the version of it here it's you know it's I think it's one of those things that you you almost had to include it um you know I I would like to have seen Tears Were Falling somewhere in there I'm sure you guys did too it's yeah, that was the head scratch oh, we'll song. get to we'll get to that we'll, get, to that? That. Yeah, yeah, we'll get that but this that. is that this is that to me it, it belongs there mm-hmm. you know it's, the album would not be the same to me without the inclusion of that song it was a, it was a strong song It was a strong single um i like the performance of this uh I, and i probably do prefer this version um more so than i i, I do the studio version hmm.
4: interesting the band were really gelling at, at this time. We, we talked about other, you know, shows around this era, like, you know, Foundations Forum, where they were playing, you know, songs they hadn't played in years. Um, but they were in a really good place because you could tell they were just working together as a band and their tempos were a little more in the pocket. You know, if they recorded this album on Asylum or, you know, Crazy Nights, it would have been just a wash of, you know, up-tempo versions of old songs and, you know, the mix and what's going on, you know, I mean, they chose the right era you know to present you know songs from that 80s era um and, and present them that way with with, with this band it, it's you know also too with you know Paul's vocals in the breakdown it's amazing you listen to this i you know i'm reminded again of how great a vocalist Paul is you know it's yeah. just amazing what that guy does with his voice and this is a great example of that i mean it, <laughs> again they the, you know they're so underappreciated for so many things. You know, yeah. you've got Paul's great vocals. you got Bruce is a really killer guitar player playing for the song, um, you know, and covering so much era. I mean, imagine you having to come into KISS and say, okay, cover 70s catalog and 80s catalog. Can you do that? I mean, that's a stretch for a lot of guitar players. And Bruce does it almost with ease, you know?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul is either at the peak of his vocal abilities or close to it, it right around now. And it's so great that... That he's captured that this
2: way um you know, Davis, one little thing i just wanted to add to something mike has said yeah uh, I, I think mike is right and in, in terms of this was the right time for them to do this this is the right iteration of the band and, and i'll tell you for me why is the tempos are correct yeah you know when you back it up to the mid 80s right and, and around Animalize and some man they were going a thousand miles an hour some of those songs were played way too fast they lost their groove yeah to me yeah. because they were played too quickly and they 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 tuned up in those cases they were the standard tuning where a lot of the songs were originally recorded down a half a step so to me this was the right time to do it because I think their tuning was obviously cr- true to the original form of t- tuning down at least a half a step and they had their tempos were there mm-hmm. the energy and the groove the swing to that band was back and I think this was exactly the right time and the right format even like Heaven's on Fire they played it too fast previous, on previous tours. This had, a, it had the groove to it again, and that's one of the things I do appreciate about this record moving forward through the rest of the conversation.
0: Funny that you mentioned the groove, because this next song, Watching You, is the monster groove song of this album. I'm so glad that they included it. It sounds so great, and I'm so glad that they chose to put this song on the album and not Parasite, which they played on this tour, because I've never liked the way that this lineup played Parasite, Bruce plays the riff wrong. It doesn't work. I don't know why he couldn't get, I mean, he's an amazing guitar player. He got everything else right, but that riff eluded him for some reason. And uh, whereas, whereas watching you, he completely plays correct and makes his own and it sounds great.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Watching you is a very happy surprise for me because it is one of my favorite Kiss songs and to have it on this album made it um I mean it was surprising to me that it was on it i didn't realize i didn't think they would put it on there because i didn't i didn't know how much of a uh you know representation of the past it was you know what i mean why not strutter why not something else but um yeah
2: i loved it i thought it was great
3: hi. Hi. Oh,
2: that's my wife nita hi Bye. <laughs> thank you my, my cancer survivor wife by the way awesome, you. awesome. Nice.
4: congratulations
3: Anyway. Yeah, so that's, uh, I, I was just nicely surprised, I love the riff, I love that song, it's one of my favorites and I never really thought of it as one of their, um, you know, one of their, it is a classic Kiss song, but it's not necessarily in the top 10%, you know what I mean, it just didn't, um, if you're going to bring one back from the past, it was almost, they were like, which song will John like, you know what I mean, instead <laughs> of doing, like you said, Parasite or something like that, it's one of, it's, one of, it's always been one of my favorite Kiss songs. So I'm glad that it's included on here and it's used as sort of a snapshot from the past.
1: Yeah, I think this is, um, it was great that it was included and I love this version. I think that this is a band that although they're just going for a lot of just like blunt force throughout this record, they do have the ability to, as you say, to groove. And I think that this is um, just it's such it's such a different and in many ways superior version to the one that's on Alive. And I know that, that um, um, hardcore Kiss fans are going to be waiting outside my front door <laughs> with forks and torches because I just said that out loud. But um, the 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 this lineup of Kiss was able to kind of move through the groove of the song that the um, 1975 version of the band didn't necessarily accentuate as much. So yeah, and it makes uh, just really really nice to to put it here um after um five songs from uh, the 80s and 90s. yeah it feels almost funkier on this one
2: oh yeah i agree with john i mean the interesting thing about watching you is i think it was the song that actually brought me into uh, into being a kiss fan oh really hmm. you know, i bought i bought i bought hotter than hell around my 10th birthday my grandmother had bought it for me um, or to take me to the mall in West Covina, buy some, some, uh, music for my birthday. And I just got into 12 inch vinyl. up. You know, I had the, one of those, you guys are probably too young to remember maybe, but the old portable record players that were basically battery operated, tiny, tiny, and you put singles on, mm-hmm. but I just got my first two full-size 12 inch albums. And I was fascinated by the thought that you can actually lift the needle and drop it in front of a you know any number of the four or five songs on <laughs> that <laughs> side. So for whatever reason, I, I put on side two to Hotter Than Hell, mm. and I dropped the needle in front of watching you, mm. and that was my first kiss experience. Oh wow! And after hearing that song, I literally lost my shit, my ten year old mind. listened to the rest of that side. Snatched up the record and my little record player put it under my arm and ran down the street to my best friend's house to let <laughs> him know what I had discovered, you know? And it was watching you. So this song, the inclusion of this song on this record was a, a pleasant surpri- surprise and a treat for me because I am not fortunate on this as you, some of you guys were. I didn't get to see this tour. So to see it and, and to hear it, I, I was blown away and thought you know, if there is a kiss God somewhere, uh, <laughs> he's smiling on me today. That's awesome. Dave, I'm glad you brought up the, the,
4: uh, the Hotter Than Hell version of this song because it's funny. If you look at the version that's on Live 3, it's definitely got elements of that sort of, you know, sludgy, heavy version that's on Hotter Than Hell, uh, whereas the live is almost sort of distant in a way. You know, it's, it's almost like you're listening, you know, to, to that version of the song through a tunnel or something. It, it's definitely not as as rooted as it is on, you know, the Hotter Than Hell version in Live 3. Um, but interesting point of view too is you know, here it is, you know, when you've got a band with, with such catalog, and you're going to re- release, you know, what would be, you know, the next version of a double live record, and they include, you know, sort of like, you know, a a B song, which is, you know, Watching You, which is a great song, but that's, that the fact that they, they felt that strongly about it to put on the record speaks to, you know, how, how strongly they think of it as a song. Um, but, you know, the, the easiest thing for them to do would have been to put more hits on a live three, and they chose, in this case, to give the fans, you know, the diehards something that they would be able to you know appreciate and sink their teeth into if you know as we're, were mentioned by some of us if you didn't see the tour and you didn't get a chance to see those songs live well here's your chance when you go home and you buy the cd and you, you, you can listen to that so cool that they embrace the, the notion of you know the, sort of you know b tracks you know, in the old catalog and put that on
0: a live record absolutely and then we have yet another song from revenge uh domino which I think works really well here. You know, again, I don't know if it would work in the set today, but um, you know, it's got a great riff, and um, I think it's every bit a classic gene song as something like calling Dr. Love is.
3: Except not involving a dog. Uh, <laughs> no dogs. <laughs> is it, uh, I don't um, this song is, Absolutely ridiculous I love it but it's absolutely ridiculous and you couldn't play it now it is a song of the 80s even though it's the 90s I guess when it came out right but it's definitely like a tail end metal hair metal song you know what I mean I don't think anybody in their right mind would write this at this point in their lives and say this is the hit single that we're going to release it's still a great song I'd be interested who plays cock rock now what are the cock rock bands I mean are there bands like Kiss still writing things like this
0: yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of like some Swedish and Finnish bands that are sort of carrying the torch. Yeah, but I've
3: heard those bands, and they, they they tend to not be writing songs like this. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the band Massive Wagons might, I don't know. They seem to be more about self-affirmation instead of whatever. Never mind, that's another podcast. Again, to me, it's I like the song, but it is definitely a song that no one could ever write today. I think it's a nice thing that it's included on this it shows kiss at a certain point in their careers, you know, a certain time that they could say, yeah, we could write this song and perform it with a straight face. And it's, you know, and it's a good song, you know? So I, I, I like that it's included there because it's a nice, um, you know, like I said, nice snapshot of that time period.
1: Yeah. I I think um, I'm glad it's here. Um, I'm also, um, I I basically think of this uh, like Mm. it's, I feel like this is the beginning of, of what would be side two of a real live record, you know. I, that's, I, I feel like it's sort of, is, is like, sort of like the flip of the record, so it gets what I consider to be kind of like a prominent slot on the record, at least in my own weird mind. But um, but yeah, I'm glad that they included it. The lyrics don't pass the, um, the 21st century test, uh, but I'm glad it's here. The one thing that I do have to point out, though, is during the vocal breakdown, I've always wondered why they went with this take of Gene's vocals, you know. Because he sounds like a like an old man, um, on you know during the breakdown. I've never ever been able to figure out why they went with that take. That he, he just sounds like he sounds like somebody twenty years older than he is. <laughs> even even weirder. And so, hey, um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, well, I mean, you know, I guess you know they established this really old and really young concept all the way back on Going Blind, but this just felt weird. It felt like like I don't know. Uh, But
2: having said that, I'm glad the song is here. You know, this is another example to me of where, you know, groove and tempo are important. I think if this song had been attempted by the 1987 version of the band or 86, 85, where things tended to be, you know, hyper sped up, it wouldn't have worked. The song had been a complete disaster. But one of the things about this, song in this album that, that's not lost on me either, and all you guys are musicians too, is not only is there a groove here, um, and and the, the tempos and timing of it are right, but there are dynamics on, on this particular live album. And when you think of KISS and you think of KISS, you know, a live too as an example, do you guys think that the word dynamics come to your mind right away as far as the band, you know, soft passages, heavier passages? Not, necess- not necessarily, you know, I mean, yeah I mean you think about the arpeggio beginning of the something like I want you right but 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 within the song structures not so much maybe but in this on this album there, there's a lot of that a lot more of that going on than maybe you think of at first blush but when list, Domino is a good example you know there's passages where they kind of they they you know obviously you know they break it down a little bit and 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 uh the groove is right it's you know it's Again, I don't think it's a song that could have been released today, and they, they would probably would probably work today. But I, I think on this. Album,
3: well, I mean, it would work, as, as say, like if they were as like a hip hop song. Yeah. Then. Right.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, massaging and all that. It just, it right. just
1: doesn't work for a kind of rock song. Anymore. Right.
2: I mean, but yeah, but I like. I mean, it's it's. I think you know, it's it's it it earned its place at that time on on a record like this, and I'm glad it's there.
4: It, it's a great version of the song and but also on uh, Andrew's point about the breakdown yeah there's definitely something interesting about you know the take that they chose uh for this uh this record um but I I do know that from attending the show I, I think who the opening bands it was Trickster and Great White, or Faster Pussycat I think in Pittsburgh and then Kiss but you know it's funny that breakdown though the Kiss were always great at you know, if it was just a, a normal songwriter they're writing a song and, you know, and, and when that bitch bends over and I forget my name, they somehow turn it into a way to involve the audience. I remember Gene specifically pointing to the stage left saying, when that bitch over there bends over, you know, just pointing at just a, a group mm-hmm. of people, but it brings them into the show. You know, it, it, it connects them with, you know, the band and, it, you know, even though the band <laughs> or, you know, the audience, there might've been one girl he might've been looking at, but everybody in that group just responded to that. And they had that, that power when they just connect and point at the audience. I don't know, to me, you know, ever since you know, being a little kid and seeing them in 1979, I still swear to God that there was a minute where Gene pointed to me, you know, at the Civic Arena in 1979. I know damn well that didn't happen, but in my mind, you know, I, we locked eyes for a second, and that meant something to me. And it's interesting that, you know, a simple breakdown in a song can be turned into something that really will connect and involve the audience. Um, so no matter what you know, our take is on, you know, the, the take that they used for this, you know, this, this record, uh, in a live setting, it worked, and they made it a way to connect with the audience, which I thought was really cool.
0: Good point. Good yeah, point good point so next up is my favorite track on the album uh the the quote unquote live version which apparently was not live at all was recorded completely at a sound check but is such a great performance of the song anyhow um that you know paul is singing everything up an octave during the verses and it's it's such a powerful Heavy take on I was made for loving you. And just, I'll just tell the story real quick because I told it on the Dynasty. Uh, podcast, but maybe somebody didn't hear that. When this is the quick version, when I was working as a runner at Signet Sound, I was giving a lift to Desmond Child to do some antique shopping. And I happened to have a live three in my car. And I said, Hey, can I play you the live version of I Was Made for Loving You that just came out? And he listened to it and he, he was shaking his head to it. And he said, uh, Wow, I like it. It's got more balls than the one we did. You know? <laughs>
3: yeah it's definitely it's a it's a great it's the way they metal it up a little bit makes it even stronger as a song but it still doesn't leave it doesn't lose that sort of i mean i love the groove to it i love i love i was made for loving you i know that's like a sin amongst kiss fans but it's it's up there with one of my favorite songs just because of the whole I mean, that bridge alone, that dug-a, 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 you know, I love that. I mean, it's so simple and yet so awesome. And they do a great job on it here live because it becomes even heavier. So yeah, I really like it.
1: Yeah, this this for me is probably the highlight of the entire record. I agree with you there. I think um, um, the thing I would need to mention at this point is that. Credit for this even happening has to go to Larry Mazer, who was the band's manager in between Jesse Hilson when he took over during Crazy Nights, and then Doc McGee who took over kind of when the makeup era returned. Larry Mazer was the guy behind the scenes who was largely responsible for getting Kiss to start looking backwards and playing old stuff. He was the guy responsible for getting them to bring back all the older songs for Hot in the Shade, and he was also the guy who made the suggestion you really ought to... Do a metal up version of "I Was Made for Loving You," and apparently it took a little bit of convincing to get the band to try it. And then once they actually debuted it on "I Was Made for Loving You," it never left the live set after that. And so Larry does not get anywhere near enough credit for getting the band from Crazy Nights to the Kiss conventions, and or and because he was the guy who really really helps, um, you know, kind of point them towards what they were best at, again, and did a really, really good job. So the fact that, um, you know, this is, for me, just a classic example of a great manager making a great suggestion, and then the band ran with it and just absolutely hit it out of the park. Um, my favorite part of it is I love during the, you know, when, um, when the song picks back up after that little middle break, when, they, um, when Gene's bass line kicks in, they just mix it all the way up to the top. Um, what a great moment that is, you know, and it just, it, it it shows what a great song this is because this started as a pop slash disco song, but the song is so good that you can remake it as a heavy metal, you, you can rearrange it as a heavy metal song, and it's just as good, and so, yeah, all things around, and yes, uh, Paul's vocal performance on this is fantastic. I don't really care if it was a check or not.
2: I love this. Yeah, I agree with John, too. I, I love this song when it came out.
3: Yeah, I know it's. Are we allowed to like this song now? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I felt like it was, like, admitting that you like this song was sort of like, well, you're obviously not a real Kiss fan. If you go on iTunes, it's the number one when they do like their top songs or whatever. Uh, it's the number one. It's the first song on that list. I think it's actually the most looked up song by Kiss um, by anybody. So I don't know if that, that says anything.
2: I, I loved it um, when it was initially released. Uh, I love this version. Um, this version is... Uh, is in some ways maybe it's my go-to version when i listen to it because i do like the energy of this particular version Mm -hmm. of the song i think it's mixed really well the only thing i could say that i'm disappointed with with the entire thing is that they didn't go with the seven and a half minute disco mix version (laughs) 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 the laser sounds and stuff that was sweet <laughs> along with Mike's A-track player behind him, uh, yeah, right. that I love so much. <laughs> that's my only. That's that's the only downside. To the whole otherwise perfect performance of "I Was Made for Loving You." Uh, and the four explosions right in, in a row. There you go. We um, need more explosion. Nice. Middle of the song are pretty good too. Always. <laughs> right, yes. down, more pyro. Something up. Yeah.
4: More pyro. Scare that audience. You know. <laughs> Wake them up. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> For me, it, it's a, it's it's uh, to to, you know, to echo what David said. It's definitely you know the go-to version of, of this song in terms of a live presentation, um, and again, that's from the perspective of you know playing in bands where I've, I've had to present this song live, and this is the, the one to go to. Like it's it, it's the one that works. But funny that when you think about it, the version of the song Dynasty is definitely meant to sound like a disco song, uh, but the version that they played on on the Dynasty tour is an absolute train wreck. I mean, they they bumped it up to like F sharp, yep. and they were just you know they were hanging on for dear life playing that song and it was really not a good presentation of the song granted you know David probably remembers more than me and Dave do in terms of the 1979 show there's probably so much volume going on that you didn't know what song they were playing to begin with.
2: Yeah you know, I, I different was different. at Lakeland for the opening night of that tour and <clears throat> you're exactly right it was fucking loud you know I'd seen Kiss multiple wow. times before but it was but I was up front it was fucking loud and it was hard okay. it was the one show I did leave brother to your point that my ears were screaming for two days.
4: Okay. So yeah, it was yeah. Hard. it was a
2: sledgehammer. It was a sledgehammer approach to, you know, getting it across and you know, maybe it was opening night thing or whatever. But yeah, to, to your point, it was really hard to discern anything going on other than sheer bombast of, of the show and the presentation of the show, not so much dynamics or how the song was, you know, tuned up a, a half a step or a full step or whatever they did. Yeah. Um, but hey, it was still a kiss show.
4: It was great and funny because I went to that show in '79 with my mom, and I've always asked her about this. So, what do you remember about that show? And she said it was really loud. <laughs> and you know, but I remember we walked in, and I didn't know at the time where where our seats were. And we asked the usher, he you know where our seats are, and he, he just kind of said, "Oh, these seats are on the roof." And he wasn't far from it because literally we had the, like the last seat in in the venue, and you could touch <laughs> the roof. It was this aluminum you know roof that opened up. And really, I could turn around and touch the roof. He was right. But at the same time, it was that loud up there. I can imagine how loud it was in the, the first five rows or so. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Yeah, but, there's, you know, a, there's a great yeah. quote. I think it was either by Neil Bogart or Bill Coyne where they said, yeah, it's great. The band's got a hit song and they can't pull it off live um, <laughs> at the, on the Dynasty tour.
4: <laughs> but you know, they definitely found their groove with them. And this is, you know, if you're going to present that song, this is the way to do it. And cool that this lineup found a way to do that. You know, it it is like sort of maybe more of a, you know, we call a metal version of it or whatever it is. It's great. And they've even said that, you know, they can play a song like I was made for Loving in front of like, you know, one of those large, like, you know, heavy metal, you know, hard rock festival shows where you got all these badasses wearing, you know, black and leather and, you know, spikes and all this stuff. And they're all singing along to a disco song. I mean, you know, what, how how versatile can you be
0: right this is the one kiss song that uses you know essentially like scat vocals the do 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 that where it works unquestionably and it's integral to the song Yeah. yeah next up i still love you great vocal showcase for paul in his prime that's all i have to say about it
3: yeah agreed I'm not. I'm not the world's biggest fan of this song. I like it, but it definitely is. You know what I mean. It still gets me.
1: It's it's one uh, right there. It's one of his signature ballads, and I'm glad that it's another song from Creatures that's on here. But it's also it's it's as brilliant as it is. I've never made the connection with it. It's never been one of my absolute favorites. But um, you know, you're going to have a couple of these in in, in you know uh, a two-hour show, and yes, yeah, all a good right. One. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dave, uh, I agree. I mean, it's uh, it's a song I alluded to before. I think Paul's vocal performance on the song is fantastic, but it's a song I could do without. It's the other song on this record that I can actually hit the, the forward fast forward button, go to the next track.
4: I agree, Dave. I, only because I think, in terms of tempo, if you compare it to the version that's on Animalized Live and Censored, there's a little more excitement with that version. Not not because it's faster or too fast, but it just seems to be less it's just kind of dragging along on, on this record and you know, I wish there's a little more you know nothing that's not a takeaway you know in terms of their playing or, or Paul's vocals it's just to me it's just a little slow you know maybe a little more tempo would have been a little more interesting and I wouldn't want to you know skip through it you know but it's an excellent example of the, you know Paul's amazing vocals all
3: right well now we're talking bad about it it's too heavy-handed it's too you know what I mean. It's. No one's seeing that. I'm making a noise and no one will be able to decipher that what I mean. But it's too heavy handed of a song. The tempo needs to be faster. It needs to be lighter. There's too much distortion on it. It's not, it's too heavy and it shouldn't be that heavy.
4: Yeah, especially when you compare it to the, the studio version. I mean, that's, that's, there's a lot of crystal clean guitar sounds. And, you know, right. but, I mean, you know, it's also a different drummer. You know, so
0: there's a lot of right. different
4: things come into play here.
0: So then we have a new version of Rock and Roll All Night. It's kind of an odd placement for the song, I think, because I'm just used to the song being sort of a showcase of the set, either the last song of the set before the encore, the last song of the encore. And I remember they were playing it in a weird space on this tour. It was almost like a perfunctory throwaway. Like, we know we've got to include it somewhere, so we'll just put it here, and then we can say we've done it. And it was like um, they they had kind of an obligatory attitude towards the song on this tour for some reason.
1: I like it placed in the middle of the set. I actually, I mean, you know, you can't have a KISS. I mean, it, it is one of, you know, there. every band has a couple of songs that are what I like to call gotta place. You know, um, some bands have one or two, some have more. Um, you, know, you know, KISS has basically three of them, you know, and, uh, um, but this is, I, I liked the fact that they actually moved it up to the middle of the set. That for me actually made it work and we all know and love the song so I, I think i can i can leave my commentary at that
3: I, I like it i don't even necessarily believe that it needs to be re-recorded but i like the way that it sounds a lot cleaner a lot more you know it sounds updated but that's really about it i'd prefer the old the alive two version though.
0: a live one yeah a
3: live one sorry oh geez um ugh, don't take my start away <laughs>
2: no i just uh, i'll concur with john it's I don't know that they needed to re-record it. I get it. You know, they, they want to sell records, too, It's their hit song, and, um, you know, maybe later in the set. But I don't think it would have made it any difference to me whatsoever. It's just, hey, it's rock and roll night. It's a Kiss anthem. It's there. That's about it.
3: They traded it out. Yeah, the, okay. The, uh, Dave and Mike, you guys, well, no, and Andrew, you guys are from Pittsburgh. Uh, you know that there's the DV, the rock station, opens its electric lunch every Friday. With Hayes, guys, it's Friday, and they play... And sometimes they even have Gene and Paul say, hey, Yins, guys, it's Friday. And they actually play mm. rock and roll all night. And they su- they swapped it out for the Alive 3 version, I think, for um, a few years ago, I think it was. I mean, mm. that was probably the last time I really listened to DVE and noticed okay. that it was the Alive 3 version. But now I think they're back to playing the Alive 2 version. But it is literally a song that is played every Friday at noon in Pittsburgh on what I believe is the top listened to rock station at this point. Or at least had for a while had the top. I don't I don't know what the stats are anymore, for the radio station. Okay. But it was still one of the most listened to radio stations, you know, in Pittsburgh.
4: Yeah, I mean, for a live Kiss album, you have to include Rock and Roll All Night. I mean, how could you not? You know, is it the best version of everybody's favorite version? No. Um, I would go to David's point about how the the version was recorded, um, around the era of Alive 2 is is a much more interesting version. Uh, but you know, then again, that's a whole different band. Uh, but to Andrew's point about you know placement, or everybody's point about the placement of the song in the set. Nothing worse than going to a concert and hearing a song that's going to signal the end of the show. You know, so in <laughs> yeah. this case, you get to hear you know what would be a closing song and know, because they were playing some really long sets. I think they're playing up around like 24 songs mm-hmm. in their sets on this tour.
0: On the yeah. opening night of the arena show in Bethlehem, I think they played more songs than they've ever played on any yeah. tour. It was something like, yeah, 24 songs, ridiculous amount of songs. Uh,
4: yeah, so maybe you know, hearing something that will be a closing song and knowing that you're going to hear at least you know, six or seven more songs from your favorite
0: band is a good thing. And then that takes us to Lick It Up, which, uh, you know, I got to say, I love this song live, but it's a song that's kind of evolved over time into different iterations. And there are other iterations of this song that I think are better than the one presented here. You know, there's a lot of room for Paul to improvise vocally on this song. And there's, uh, on his best nights he's, he's gotten into some really cool interesting vocal improv stuff and the chorus takes on almost like a really raucous um, almost like religious choir aspect and I, I wish that the, this version had captured a little bit more of that.
3: Wow I agree 100% with you on that. Is this when they're playing uh, Won't Get Fooled Again now? Is this they've started to put, you know?
0: Yeah, now they go. They morph it into Won't Get Fooled Again, yeah, which now- is cool. Yeah, I, I, I like that, but uh, anyway, here, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I, like the, I like that idea, um, but uh, no, the song didn't blow me away. You know what I mean? I mean, and I like Lick It Up because that was, you know, it's a good song, but I hear what you're saying, Dave. I agree 100% with what you say.
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, I'm, I'm with you there. I think it's, it is arguably the signature song of the non-makeup era for the band. And yeah, the, there there have been several different versions. This isn't one of the this isn't one of the signature live versions, but at the same time, you know, you gotta have it on the record. And maybe just the, you know, maybe these, you know, I'm 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 presuming this was the arrangement and the performance that they were going with throughout this tour. And they had three cracks at it because they will take three nights. And I guess this is um, You know, if if they did combined versions the way that, you know, know, that Kramer did with all the Led Zeppelin stuff, then this is, you know, this is the best that they had at the time. And hey, there it is. It's on the record.
2: Yeah, it's a safe pedestrian version of the song. I agree with everybody else. There's there's better versions of that song. Um, You know, I don't hate it, um, but it's not my go-to version of the song. But I I get it needed to be included there. And uh, it was a safe version of it. And that's about the best I can say about it.
1: Yeah, I, do, I I do love the inclusion of that who bit. Um, the, the yeah. first, it's about what thirty or forty seconds of "Won't Get Fooled Again," which is and mostly instrumental. There's one big yeah from Paul when they come back in, but I think that's um, I think it I, I absolutely love when they do that. And they were playing parts of "Won't Get Fooled Again" as like a goof around cover at this point, but it didn't look like it made it into a, um, but they somebody somebody hadn't mix that chocolate with this peanut butter yet
0: yeah. yeah i think on the asylum tour they they played a cover mm-hmm. of won't get fooled again i have yeah. that
2: if you guys want it yeah um, yeah but they have uh but i think they, on this version do they include that little that little motif there of uh of uh i'm a legend tonight yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 uh, yeah 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 yeah
4: for sure. I call that the you know, the uh the Michael Jackson uh beat it.
2: Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> right. yeah, that's in there too. Okay, I did forget.
4: <laughs> no, that that's for sure. And it's a great arrangement of the song. I mean, you know, whether or not this is everybody's favorite take. Um, uh, but you know, the 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 album version is kind of sterile. You know, there's really no guitar solo, it's really right. just an arpeggiated guitar part. Uh but cool that they add, you know, the Legend Tonight, you know, beat it part and have Bruce, you know, do an extended solo. And then he also solos over which, which is part of the chorus as well before they do the the woe, you know, build up before the last chorus. I mean, it's a great arrangement of the song and it's much more interesting than what is on uh, the studio version, but, um, you know, there, there are probably better versions of this out there, but this
0: is this is what we get. This is what's on the record and that's that. So then we have uh, Forever, which was Kiss's biggest hit, I think, since Beth, or at least in terms of ballads since Beth. So it's, it's no shock that they decided to include it here. Um, you know, I, I think, again, it's as Paul sounds great on it, you know, it's it's kind of a generic song in general. So there's only so much they can do with it. But, you know, what they can do with it, they do with it. And the only thing is, uh, is, is, does Bruce actually play an acoustic on this version?
4: Yeah, I think he was playing Things uh, like it.
0: Yeah,
3: I don't know. I, I was asking if you guys knew if that was overdu- overdubbed or not.
4: Okay. I, I no, as a matter of fact, I think he plays electric through the song up until the solo and he plays I think at the time Paul and, and Bruce had these things I have one here but I can't show it to you because it's in the case. There was a version that Gibson put out called the Chet Atkins, uh, which is kind of like almost like a solid body acoustic guitar if that makes any sense. you know you had pick, a pickup in it you could and you know it kind of sounded like an acoustic without having all the boominess of like a, a hollow body. Uh, acoustic, but I'm pretty certain the Bruce would play electric through the rest of the song, but then go to a uh, sort of stand-mounted uh, Chet Atkins Gibson acoustic yeah, guitar. And okay. Paul played, I think Paul played a Chet Atkins uh, version of that guitar, but it was a 12-string. Okay. Paul was on 12-string acoustic all the way through the, the song itself.
0: And what's interesting about that is on the bootleg that you sent me, Dave, where they're playing this song in Japan, Bruce is clear, just clearly plays the solo on an electric yeah. guitar. He just keeps playing. And but I do now that you mentioned, I do remember they had the stand set up with the acoustic so that he could pull it off by the time they got back to the states.:
4: Yeah, so. I call it the, the Tesla stand. I think they might have pioneered that stand, okay but either way.) <laughs> I like it. I wish Tears Were Fallen
3: was there. I mean, I like that
0: song. I mean, it's yeah, we'll get to that. We'll yeah. get to that. I mean,
3: yeah. Whatever. But no, I mean, it's fine. It's It does, what it, like, I, I mean, I know I, that sounds like a cliche, but it's their biggest selling hit song in, like, the, all of their songs. And it was, like, indispensable from MTV. I remember seeing it all the time. So it's fine. They still do it live, I'm pretty sure, right? Or they do uh, no, no, they
0: haven't played it live for. I can't. Re- when was the last time yeah, they? played Now it that I time? think about it, maybe you're right. Oh well,
3: yeah, yeah it yeah. does. I mean, it's fine. I don't. I don't have anything. I I was impressed that they did the acoustic guitar. So there was a part of me was like, did they um did they overdub that? But I guess not. I guess they had a little stand there.
4: Right. All right. According to uh, what I see. Okay. And this only is up to about 1996. Uh, the last time they played it was uh, February 14th, 1995, which probably would have been a Kiss convention, right?
1: Right. It, it it certainly should be on this record. It's it's their it was their biggest hit of the decade by a significant margin, and it's um, it does what it says on the can.
2: No, yeah, I think it was Bruce definitely. I have one of those stands too that I use. Is that you know you have the acoustic you know. Stand, you know, stand to you mount your acoustic on so you can transition from your electric guitar to the acoustic part and then come back. Um, I think there might even be a version of that on what was it was a Kiss Confidential or one of those where part of that, a live you know, the Coba Hall show or something was on that, if, if I remember. But yeah, this is the lighter song, right? This is where everybody get your lighters out, Paul would go, hey, everybody get your lighters out, lighters right, yeah. up. it was that song, you know, and it, and it definitely had its place, you know. I mean, it was definitely was a hit. The, the version here is, is pretty true to form to the, the uh, studio version. And, uh, look, let's be honest, it's sold records. So at this point in time, you know, kiss was trying to sell records. So it, you know, like Beth, you know, it, it, it needed, probably needed to be there for a couple different reasons, but I, I like the version of the song. Um, but we'll, we'll get into what John said in, in a minute or two about maybe the, what could have been included instead of, but, uh, that's a mm-hmm. conversation for later on in, uh, in the conversation? Yeah, definitely. It was on Kiss Confidential.
4: I was thinking it was on the Kissology uh, box set, which is sorry, upside down, uh, but it, it's not there. That wasn't included on that. Uh, but funny to think that you have, I mean, talk about catalog for crying out loud. You have all these great songs from Revenge that we mentioned. And this song, which was a super huge hit, imagine being in a situation you're in a band, you have all this great catalog and all these hits, and you just don't have enough time to play all your hits. <laughs> this song has been played for years. But you know, it's it was huge.
0: I mean, it's, well, just, it's a good, good problem to make.
1: It's a good problem to have. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, really? it's about the best problem you can have.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now, this next song uh, was a bonus track, so a lot of people didn't get to hear this until later. But uh, they include again from Revenge the pan to strip clubs, take it off.
3: The best part of the song is the rap at the beginning. The best part of the song is the rap at the beginning while you're driving in the car with your 15 year old son on the way to his boyfriend. <laughs> 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 what does he say? What does he say to introduce this? What does he what say like, to introduce how many of you like to look at naked ladies? <laughs>
0: yeah, oh, right, <laughs> like, right, right, we're, right, we're, right, we're right.
3: We're without clothes on. I'm
0: like just driving, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jake's like, what did you say? <laughs> yeah, And yeah, then he yeah. turns it around and he says, and how many women like to meet a guy and go home and get naked, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.
3: That's when the song rocks. <laughs>
0: right, right.
3: You can't even defend it. You're just like, I'm going to turn that up. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, no, I, I don't get an opinion about it. I think it's a, it was kind of a dumb song in the first place. I mean, I understand that it's, you got to have it at a KISS show because it's about strippers and we're going to get all the women throwing their panties and bras at you, so. It's kind of, it's almost like you have to have it in the set, but it never really stood out for me.
0: I think they they do a fine job of performing it. It sounds, you know, essentially as good as it does on the album.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Jack's a big fan. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew? Um, Yeah, it just, I mean, it was a bonus, I mean, it wasn't even on the original release, and it was on the bonus track. It it came out as a bonus track later. Um, I'm I've never been a big fan of the song, as as we said last week. I think the whole thing was uh, a bit of a misfire. So it just, for me, I I, um, I could have, I was perfectly happy when the li- when the live album My Bot didn't have it.
2: Yeah, it was it was initially a Japanese bonus track. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, I back back. Well, I'm still that guy. I'm a completist, so I you know I, I like all those those Japanese bonus tracks.
4: The key point for me with this song is. Um, Paul's vocals on this version seem to be stronger than what is on uh, the, the revenge version in a way. It's a little more oh, adventurous interesting. You okay. know, I think it, it comes across better um, and I don't know why this hit me. I was wondering what, the, what there's another song this song reminds me of um, and there's a fabulous Thunderbird song called uh, Twisted Off ah. which is in like uh, the movie um, Light of Day with Michael J. Fox and, and Joan Jett but I wonder why like, the chorus has the same kind of cadence okay. uh, you know, the, you know the kisses song you know twist or not twist it off take it off has. Um, that just hit me the other day I, was like, I know there's a song that sounds like this song and, and it, it okay shows, so i'll yeah. have to check but, that out yeah but you know i mean yeah i mean t- talk about inappropriate i mean in the live show they were bringing you know you know women on stage you know in lingerie and you know i mean geez, oh man could you do that these days no you know
0: <laughs> right not unless you're steel panther
4: well <laughs> that's, true. that's true that's true good point
3: still I mean guys I you know we're talking about we're all what 40 something to 50 something I mean we don't go to shows like this anymore you know what I mean but I mean I I know that like I mean we you know what I mean (laughs) these types of these types of shows wouldn't grab our attention now because you know we've sort of outgrown it but I mean in terms of like naked women prancing on stage it still goes on in live shows KISS isn't gonna do it, and they're gonna look ridiculous if they try to do it now. But I mean, there's plenty of, you know, shows with ha- scantily clad dancers, you know, gyrating yeah, on the true. stage. Just true. don't true. go to those shows, Very true. you know. So we uh, just, let's be careful that we don't sound more curmudgeonly than we actually are. Let's go to one of those shows right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right now. <laughs> Where is Nickelback <laughs> playing? Party B, right now. Right. <laughs> I need my Nickelback ticket. Right. Mm. I, I've heard. <laughs> wap and i know what it means
4: <laughs> right i'm sure beyonce was inspired by going to you know kiss on the revenge trip, right. right yeah so, exactly
0: right? yeah not yeah. i love it loud which oddly enough was the first kind of and only single from this album um they did a video for it I think it's a good version. The only thing that bothers me about this version is the thing that bothers me about the way that they play the song live every time: <laughs> the fact that they dropped two lines from one verse for no good reason. For Paul the doesn't that Paul, like it. Yes, Paul thought the song dragged, and his solution to the problem was to drop two lines from one verse. <laughs> and I just—it's ridiculous that they do that, and they need to stop
4: that yeah and we can add uh, you know a whole cover version of a who song and lick it up that's right, scary,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
4: no problem all right paul i get it you're the you're the man in charge <laughs> no problem
3: yeah i got i mean again i got nothing to add to it it's one of my favorite kiss songs it's the first song i ever learned how to play on bass guitar so i sort of have a soft spot for it but um yeah i, lo- I love the song but again and they do a fine job of performing it there's nothing you know what i mean there's nothing wrong with it. I love that Colin response in the song. It's great.
1: Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, it, it's it, it is a slam dunk for inclusion on this record. Although it technically was, you know, written and recorded during the very end of the makeup era, I have always thought of this song as kind of like one of the signature non-makeup songs. And so I think it's just for me, it just it, it is. Very, and it's and I guess you can kind of sidestep the issues by saying it's a classic '80s Kiss song. Um, but it absolutely, uh, there was no way it was not going to be included on this record. And um, I think they it's, it's, it's a strong version and I like where they placed it on the record.
2: Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's one of my favorite Gene songs. Um, it was a song when Creatures came out that uh, was the first single from Creatures, if I remember correctly. And, and the video was outstanding and, and for KISS and nerd trivia, I think it was the only Kiss song ever performed twice in one show. What show was that? It was well, you'll never see it, but it happened. Uh, but you can look it up in Rio. They they played it and they had to play it again.
1: Oh, because the crowd kept on chanting the encore, and they basically had to like um... get the crowd to stop
2: by playing it again. Well, <laughs> yeah, they 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 played it at one point in the set, and then they, it went over really well, and then later on. They, they played it again as one of the encores. Only song they've ever done that with since since they got out of the clubs. I think
1: the crowd yeah. did that because the, the crowd started the hey, hey chant again, and they right. wouldn't stop doing it. but right. so so they up playing so it again.
2: We so got four song later, together. Yeah, so <laughs> there, there's that. But yeah,
3: someone's gonna wind up dead if you don't go out and play that. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah,
2: no. Shit. I guess
0: if you have a hundred thousand people in your face going hey yeah, you go, yeah, okay, we got to do that,
2: huh? It's like Tony Silvano standing in front of you going, you're going to play that song again, right? My wife likes that song. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Power to the people. (laughs)
3: Right,
4: yeah. They were outnumbered.
3: When Kess got democratized. (laughs) Yes.
4: No, it it belongs on the record. I mean, it was, you know, a song that deserves representation on the the record. You know, the best version of it, no, to me it's a little slow, but, you know, it works. Okay. For the record it's, it's about everything else.
0: Detroit Rock City. It's a cool version. I like what Eric Singer's playing on drums. I think it gives the song a ton of energy. My only complaint is that I this is another song like Lick It Up where Paul has a wide open uh you know palette to improvise mm-hmm. the way that he sings this song. And I think he's there are, are ways that he's approached this song that are more interesting than this one. Like I love the way he sang it on Unmasked yeah. um, and, he, and it sounded mm-hmm. so cool and melodic on that tour and I, I wish that that had been documented on a live album, but for all that, I think this is a great version because I think Eric Singer just kicks ass.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Excellent point.
1: I
0: love this version. This is actually my
1: go-to. Um, I think this is another song. It is, again, it's one of, in my opinion, this is Kiss's best song. And this is, and and it is such a good song that you can arrange it in a different style of rock and roll. In this case, like a flight up, uh, uh, like a straight up heavy metal version. And it, I think it, it absolutely flourishes. I love the fact that Gene's bass is mixed way, way, way up. I love the big ending with the five big chords, um, and it just this 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 has been a go-to song for me for so for so long. I think when you know when I'm when I have five minutes left to go and just an absolute slog of a workout and I need something that's going to get me through those last five minutes, I go to this or a whole lot of Rosie by AC/DC. Either of those two will do the trick. Um, so yeah, <laughs> like like
2: every thumbs up that I can possibly give to this version. You know what? I, I love this version of the song. I love uh, the energy that, that Eric brings to this song. Obviously, the double kick is, is, is there. I love the mix of this version of the song. Uh, it is probably my, my favorite version of this song, which is arguably my favorite KISS song. Uh, and I do love the Destroyer version for what it is. I love Alive 2 for what that was. But this song, I, I you know this, it's if I had to make a choice, and I can only take one version of Detroit Rock City with me to the, you know, the the island, so to speak, this would be the one. Hmm.
3: Huh. Interesting point. Yeah. This is my um, when people always ask, because that always happens all the time, what's your favorite song? I always say Detroit Rock City. So um, this is one of my favorite versions of it too, because I love the way that it's updated little bit faster, you know.
4: Well done. I would say, for, yeah, for me, um it's funny that you know a lot of this. You're, you're, this is potentially all a lot of our favorite, you know, a lot of our, you know, going to call it like a favorite kiss song. It's it's no wonder. It's, it's it's a great song. um In terms of you know the the band dynamic in this era, definitely uh we've mentioned you know Gene's bass is brought up a little bit more volume wise, and I think that shows that they were trying to you know groove more with the rhythm section and that you know in the dynamics with what, what Eric's doing. Uh, but if I, had to, if I had to choose, I would definitely choose the Alive 2 version is my favorite version. Only because it just, it just captures you know, the, the live energy of, of that song as it was presented, not to mention the explosions and the bombast and the excitement. I mean, that version of Alive 2 to me is badass. Um, You know, in, in my opinion, they could have released you know one record, you know, 45 of the live, you know, Kiss Alive 2, Detroit City. I would, that would have been it for me. I would have been happy with that you know, for, for the rest of my life. That's how much I love that version. But I'm glad it's on this record. Um, but you know, it showcases the way the band were approaching those old songs um, as, you know, in, in this era, you know, and that's the way they were playing it. They, they, they play it differently now, um, you know, and I think the thing that might be missing in this version is you know, that sort of Peter classic groove that he has where he's doing like the double snare hits, whereas now we're doing double bass drum hits. I mean, it's a different mm-hmm. approach, maybe doing the same thing, but if there's a reason why it sounds different, that might be you know, part of it. Mm. Interesting.
3: Yeah, good point. Yeah, I love the I love the well, this is one of my favorite bass lines in Kiss history. Yeah. And the whole the way that they crank it up, he plays it super slick. You know, he does. Uh, there's even a little bit of popping in there in some places, it sounds like. Um, but it's uh well, maybe not popping, but he's just his fingers slide right through it better than any version that I've ever It's solid. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
4: if you compare it to your know, bootlegs from the Destroyer Horror, I mean he was. He sometimes when he was playing the whole riff, you I know, mean, he was playing a different way, kind of hanging on for dear life, you know. Right. With well, probably volume. It, yeah, it really yeah. kills me
3: when I find out that the song is mostly written by Bob Ezrin, including that great bass line, you know. So it's.
4: But, it's a great bass line. It's a great song. Yeah.
0: You know. And then God gave rock and roll to you too, which. I remember hearing this song at the Troubadour show and just thinking like how huge it sounded in such a small club. And it's it's one of those songs that I think scales, you know, some certain songs sound good in an arena, certain songs work better in a club. But this is one of those songs that it doesn't matter it, if it's an arena or it's a club. And on this tour, it just sounded huge. And, and I think it sounds great here.
3: Yeah. I got nothing to add to that. That's It sounds great. Again, it's uh, not one of my all-time favorite KISS songs, but still, it's really well done. Super over-the-top and awesome.
0: Andrew, I know you have a complex relationship with this song, <laughs> as we discussed last week. <laughs> yes, you, 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 t-
1: you, you took the exact word. Right? Yes, I have a complex relationship with this song, to put it mildly. However, um, This song absolutely should be on the record. It's a signature song from this, from the Revenge album and this era. Um, I have never been a fan, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be here. And so, um, yeah, and it's a good version of the song and I will leave it
2: uh, to the rest of you who like it better than I do. Yeah, I just think this is that song, that's a great example of a point I I made before. What distinguishes this album, it gives it an identity different than its two predecessors it is a dynamics and this song is full of just those and i think it's a fantastic version of it and it's a great way to close it. well almost a great way to close the record out right Because we have one more song right but still fantastic love it
4: you know let, let's go with the concept of you know a live two where they didn't want to repeat songs that were released on a live one you know so it, i'm not surprised that you know a good chunk of this record has to do with you know material that was not on a live one or live two um and i'm glad that they represented us on this record uh but interesting point too is you know if you listen to the record you think this would have been the so to speak closing song but they were actually closing the show with love gun and then going into star spangled banner so there's a a Mm. bit of the picture that you know know,
0: the people are missing if they only take it from the perspective of the record of the cd right good point good point so yeah so then they go into star spangled banner which bruce does Uh, an admirable job of, and it kind of ties in with the whole concept of the tour, Kiss being the quintessential American band and, uh, you know, the Statue of Liberty being the symbol of America, even to the point where it kind of ties into uh, the way that Paul introduces Detroit Rock City on on this album, where he says, it doesn't matter where you come from, the only thing that matters is where your head is at, and this is Detroit, right? Um, And... You know, the only thing I, I didn't love about the Statue of Liberty on the stage was, you know, the the, the head blows off and there's a skull underneath <laughs> it and it gives you the finger. And like, I, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Wait, hold on. There's also, there
1: is one other big problem here. You do not end a sentence with a preposition. And I'm sorry to be like the English teacher, but you do not end a sentence with the word at. I don't care how rock and roll it sounds. Wow, <laughs> oh, okay, man. <laughs>
0: Well, right. you're a stickler, um, <laughs> right. but, but, you know, I mean, I guess it kind of works in, in a way of, of, you know, the, 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 uh, Mentis Mori death is never too far away kind of reminder that, that, you know, no safety, the side of the grave and, you know, in a kind of a Beavis and Butthead sort of way of the skulls yeah. and the middle fingers cool and edgy, but it really, it, it just seemed silly. And, um, but, you know, I think uh, KISS is a, a great American band and they're the living embodiment of the American dream. And so for them to do Star Spangled Banner works for them in a way that maybe it wouldn't for a lot of other bands.
2: Well, I like listening to the song on on, on that rock in the USA on 4th of July. Yeah. Right? There you yeah. Go. It's got yeah. its place there. But, Absolutely. You know, my favorite part of the song, though, is the very end. Yeah. With Paul's little chant, you know, it's when Paul
0: says never stop rocking,
2: rocking, dude, is the only thing he's missing. So
0: <laughs> yes, I know I love that. I love in fact, you know, we haven't really talked about it, but Paul has some great little rap snippets on this album when he says, It ain't bullshit when you say rock and roll all night and party every day. I mean, you know, that I mean, yeah, there are some great moments of his raps in between these songs, and yeah, when he shouts out never stop rocking, you know. All you can do is say, "I won't, sir."
2: Well, I mean, that's when you jump okay. in. That's when that's when Kramer comes and goes. This is, what, guys, what I'm telling you. This is where we need more explosions. Right here, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right.
1: Yeah, I thought that this was a really nice way to finish out the record. I think the song absolutely fits. It's something that I mean. I always think of there's the Kiss 1976 poster. You know, the bicentennial one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they could have been playing. They could have been finishing shows with this in 1976, and probably the only reason why they didn't is because no one thought of it at that point, or maybe it was also too way too close to, you know, at that point the song, uh, the guitar version of the song was still pretty much owned 100% by the then only shuffled off the mortal, mortal coil a few years ago, Jimi Hendrix. That, so maybe they didn't feel like they could touch it at that I point. find that tr- I don't like it. I I don't
3: like it because it reads too much like they're paying tribute to Jimi Hendrix um, in it and I find that kind of silly and not silly I just find it kind of vacuous like I don't I don't like it I mean I get it that what they're trying to say is like we're an American band it's great to be an American band but for some reason it just seems um, I don't know I don't like it but disingenuous you know hate me if you if you just or disagree I mean I'm sure many people disagree with me but I I like that The Hendrix version to me is almost like, not holy, but it's definitely super important because it was done at a time by, you know, an African-American guitarist who was playing, like was literally in the forefront of the counterculture saying this is how America is now. America is an electric guitar distorting its way through this thing that we've all, you know, it's it's a it's a work of art, what Jimi Hendrix did, and what KISS does is, it seems a little commercial. And I know that that's not, you know, I
0: mean. Uh, I know what you're saying.
2: Yeah, but that's KISS, KISS yeah. is, right? Yeah. What, what about yeah. KISS is not commercial presentation.
0: Now, is it as classic and iconic as the Jimi Hendrix version, or is it even as good, in uh, objectively as the Jimi Hendrix version? No. 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 Not-, <laughs> not by a long shot, yeah.
3: yeah. No, I mean Jimi Hendrix did so many Damn things with so that. I mean, it's his uh, whatever. It's it. to him, it's a work of art. To them, it's find something else to do, you know, besides
2: that. Something how about else- this? How about um, shut up and play Love Gun?
3: Right? Yeah, exactly. Or, how about, <laughs> yeah.
4: or you know, but but when you think about it, I mean. You know, I think I think it was suggested by Bruce around this time, where he was saying he wanted to play a little bit of the Star Spangled Banner in the set. And from what I read, you know, either Paul or somebody else in the band said, "No, we should do it more as a band and more of an arrangement." Um, you know, when you compare this to any number of horrible versions of you know guitar players or other you know people playing other instruments opening ball games, playing just you know single instrument playing the you know the Star Spangled Banner for a ball game, some of those are god awful, and some of those are done by some of our guitar heroes you know, that, that we won't mention. You know if you're going to do something then do it big do it right arrangement do some harmony with it do something different never mind the fact that you know the it closes with a bazillion explosions you know i mean it, you know if you're going to do something that is so associated with Jimi hendrix then you've got to do it in a different way otherwise don't do it at all and i think this is probably a better version than any version you're going to see you know joe guitar player play it you know before a baseball game
3: okay you know? all right good point they did a good job on it, i just think i don't know
4: man yeah i mean the, yeah the, the, you know the, the guitar harmonies between you know, paul and bruce that's great man that takes you know that takes work you know it's not just something you're going to whip off and and play and i don't know if you've ever tried to play the star spangled banner guitar it's not easy i've tried it's not it easy and i've done it horribly you know before <laughs> a baseball game it was not good you know <laughs> and i had a eight by ten marshall stack and UniVibe and all this other stuff and i sure as hell didn't sound like Jimi hendrix so you know yeah. yeah. Hats off to them for, you know, pulling off, you know, which is really a well arranged version of the song, in my opinion.
0: Right. So anyhow, um, we should we should go around real quick roundtable. We, we, we decided we'd choose four to five songs each that we think should have been on a live three, but we're not. So I'll just go first here. Um, Songs that I wish were on the album that I think would have completed it, made it a a better album that that didn't end up here. Um, I. I should have been a part of the live set all along. It should be a part of the end of the road tour. And it would have sounded great here. This lineup could have played the hell out of it. Fits like a glove. Not my favorite song. But a song that was part of live Kiss tours year in, year out for like three, four different tours in a row, we don't have a great version of it, you know, live version of it recorded. Um, Crazy Nights. I know that they were Mm -hmm. trying to get away from, you know, some of the pop leanings, but they put Forever on. They did I Was Made for Loving You. They could have figured out a way to heavy up Crazy Nights. Tears Are Falling, a song that's always sounded better live, always sounded heavier uh, than it does on Asylum, would have sounded great here. And my last song, I Want You, because if you listen to the bootlegs, Bruce Kulik is playing the hell out of this song. He's playing some amazing leads that are sort of based on what Ace's fundamentals are, but he's taking them to new and cool and interesting places. And Paul does the little vocal solo you can really see how Paul's voice has evolved and he is in his prime and the vocal solo that he was doing live on this tour blows away the vocal solo that he was able to do on a live too. So that's the reason to include that song.
4: I focused on, there were a ton of other classic KISS songs you know, from the seventies that, that they were doing on this tour that weren't on the record. But I, I chose not to try to include any of those. Um, I agree with you, Dave. I should be on a live record nonetheless. Although that wasn't on my list only because I thought, well, I would focus more on the era that included at least Bruce and Eric, or the Erics. So I went with, uh, they needed another song from Creatures. They should add a war machine. What's missing from Asylum is definitely Tears Are Falling and, uh, All Night. Uh, from Crazy, Crazy Nights, they, had, they they needed Crazy, Crazy Nights to be included here. Um, I think they were doing a great version of that on the Hot in the Shade tour, and it would have worked, you know, in a way. Maybe the, the, the live album could have been recorded on Hot in the Shade. Uh, but also missing from Hot and Shade, which was, you know, I'm going to call it the hitter, you know, the single was Hide Your Heart. They, they could have added that. You know, I focused more on I mean, what were the, you know, the big hits that were from those classic records or which were the songs that were played when those records came out and they were on tour. Uh, so in my five would More War Machine, Tears are Falling All Night, Crazy, Crazy Nights and Hide Your Heart.
2: Okay.
0: Well, two out of the, out of the five are the same that we chose. Yeah. So,
2: Dave? Uh, I'd have definitely gone with "Read My Body," "Bang Bang You," boomerang, <laughs> and uh, no, no, no. I, why did it go? You know, those catchy little sing-alongs. You know, <laughs> Dude, oh, that's just, great. you know what? I, I feel like I just farted in a room in front of all my friends. <laughs> Is it something I said? No, <laughs> no. And seriously, I, you know, I actually. I is a good idea. I would have thought that wouldn't have come to me right away, but it, it, the way you presented it, Dave, 100%. Mm. It had been great, especially done in this in this form, the way this album was, yeah. was recorded and the sound of it. Um, I think it, it, you know, it, it, it had been perfect. Uh, but I would have gone with, uh, you know, keep, in keeping with the, the material from uh, that hadn't been included on previous live albums, I would have gone the same thing. I would have gone War Machine, Crazy Nights, uh, Hide Your Heart, and Tears Are Falling.
3: Yeah, okay. So I would have done Rock and Roll Howl. Um, hmm. I would have done Young and Wasted. Okay. Um, because Rock and Roll Hell is one of my all-time favorite KISS songs. Young and Wasted is kind of my secret bonus track that I really love that no one ever really talks about, but it's one of my favorites. Uh, I would have done Tears Are Fallen, because I i mean, I, I don't know why I like that, why that's my go-to favorite KISS ballad, but it actually is. Um, and then I'm trapped between uh, all night and all hell's breaking loose, um, uh, but I don't know. I think I think it would be neat. What? Yeah, you can have both. That's only all five. Right, I choose both them. Okay. I think it would be cool to like do those. Um, those and then also War Machine. Okay. So that's six. I don't know, but
0: whatever. Okay. Yeah. I, gotta, <laughs> I gotta drop
3: one.
1: When I, when I first pitched this idea to Dave, I, I basically was like, "Okay, I got a bunch of ground rules. Let's let's uh, let, let's go completely nuts with this." And so, what the, the way that I put this together was that let's pretend that all of a sudden they've made the decision to actually expand this into a real two LP live album, and that essentially you would be adding a side to the record, which means that you could have up to five songs, um, but whatever you did, it, ha- it would have to max out at under 22 minutes, so it really would be on the side of a record. So what I did is I took a look at the track listing and I was like, okay, Creatures through Watching You is side one. Domino through Lick It Up is side two. And I, I would strike Take It Off from the record. Um, Forever through Star Spangled Banner is side four. So that leaves side three. What I would do is um, five songs, and it would be Gene, Paul, Gene, Paul, Gene, because that way he gets to start side, sides two and three. And I would go in sequence: War Machine, Tears Are Fallen, Fits Like a Glove, uh, All Night, and then Parasite. And I think so. I think all five of us uh, said Tears Are okay. Fallen. Um, yeah. And so, and and then I think
3: yeah, that's um, at huh. least
1: three or four said War Machine. And I think at least three set all night. Uh, I think there were two of us with fits like a glove, and I'm the whole, I'm, I'm the one person for Parasite. And I I get Dave's concern about it not being quite as as you know as, as good an arrangement, but I, I thought it would be nice to bury one kind of like one of the like the lost classics from the '70s. And and the other thing about these is that all of them were played within the last tour or two. So this is something that. I think Fist Like a Glove may have been the one that was already that was not uh, in a current set on, the, on this tour, and they probably could have gotten that one back up to speed with a couple of rehearsals, because it was early in the set of every tour from Lick It Up through, uh, I think, Hot in the Shed. So that's my complete overkill answer to the question.
4: I just want to bring up one sort of, it's, it's a related question, I've always wondered about this. Um, we know that, you know, the Revenge Tour wasn't necessarily successful in terms of uh, attendance numbers. Right. Okay? So, you know, you if, if basically have filled venues. But um, in terms of merchandise, I, I know, you know, not all of us had seen the show on this tour, uh, but by by the time they got to, to Pittsburgh, uh, the tour book wasn't available for sale. Mm. Now it just doesn't make sense that if you have an under, you know, welling inter- response, you know, in terms of audience, you know, attendance at shows, you know, why would the tour program sell out that early in the tour? Did they not just print up enough? Has anybody ever really heard anything about what the real story is and why you know, the, the, the revenge tour book is so rare when, you know, if you have half the audience attending these shows, then you would half the people who have been buying those tour books. How did that just all of a sudden dry up by the time it got, you know, halfway through the tour?
3: I would argue probably because the number of people that would go to the asylum tour are that hardcore, not asylum, sorry, revenge tour are that hardcore fans um, that they would be the ones that would also buy the tour book and t-shirt rather than just the t-shirt.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting tour. If you look at why it didn't do that well, right? Because uh, they did the club tour, which, you know, obviously was well attended and then they were going to do, Uh, the arena tour and they postponed it because Paul was getting married and Gene just had a son and wanted to spend some time at home. Um, And I think what they were counting on was the same thing that happened with the Hot in the Shade tour, which was eventually they would put out the single for Every Time I Look at You and it would be a big hit. And then off the strength of that, it would boost the attendance on the tour once they finally got around to it. And unfortunately, that didn't, Lightning did not strike. Twice, so it didn't happen Mm -hmm. a second time. Um, And oddly enough, too, I think the other thing that really hurt this tour was while they were trying to be dark and heavy and edgy and they sensed that's where things were going, um, they didn't take out bands like Rob Zombie or Alice in Chains or the new breed of darker, heavier bands that were hot at the time. They were playing like heavier sets, but they took out like Trickster and yeah. bands like that and Firehouse and so then it's like well you know they're not somebody dropped the ball in terms of of who would be good support bands for this tour.
4: It, it's funny it's an interesting point too because you realize you hear they're playing these really long sets for, for the first time and why is it that you need you know two you know low to, to medium level you know bands like a Trickster or a Faster Cat opening for you? Why do you need two of those bands open for you when I mean, you've got such a strong set anyways? You know I, it could have been it could have been but like you said dave too if you had you know a band that would have been um you know not of the the more 80s you know metal genre somebody something, something a little heavier that might have worked as well you know uh, but i don't know to me i, I was just under impressed by you know bands like you know And no discredit to other guys as bands but trickster and faster points were probably the, you know the most forgettable opening acts i've ever seen you know and um wow you know they just uh, didn't do anything for me i you know they're good bands but you know they're not a Judas Priest, they're not an Iron Maiden, you know, or if you want to go to like, you know, a band like New England and open the the 1979 tour, I mean, that's a different class of bands in a way, in my opinion, you know,
0: I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Yeah, in a way, they were kind of in a similar position to Creatures, where they had an album that the diehards loved, and the band was proud of, and, you know, they expected the tour to be as successful as they felt about how good the album was, and, for whatever reason, that didn't materialize. It didn't materialize for the Creatures Tour either.
4: True. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's just timing is everything. You know, <laughs> you could have the best laid plan and you know the best record and, you know, support to, to, to tour behind it. And the audience isn't there. I mean, man, <laughs> it almost doesn't make sense.
0: Right. And there was going to be a tour for a live three, which they canceled. Instead, they did. Um, free signings mm-hmm. um to promote the album which they did one in los angeles that we went to that was at the palace which i mean uh-huh. yeah it was kind of a, a cattle call you know you got herded through real quick and each member signed a poster for you but it was cool it was free i mean you know you look at like the meet and greets today they were, the fair <laughs> band was there signing stuff for free for hours and um they even, we got flyers at this thing. Kiss was doing a similar signing at Kmart, like out in the middle of nowhere the next day. I mean, wow. It,
1: it was a nice, this album was a nice punctuation to this era. Um, I, th- I thought that um, Hot in the Shade was when the live show turned um, in terms of, you know, reaching back to, you know to the early material. And I thought that Revenge was an album that deserved a little better than it did and the live show definitely deserved a little better than it did. But it definitely, it. I guess, I'm not sure that anyone really knew it at the time, but it was the end of this era um, and I thought that it wound things up on a very good note. And again, like you know, saying it for the second time on the podcast, I think that this, this album and this tour um, It didn't do as well as it should have, but I think just in terms of how they managed to turn the business around and how they managed to really bring a lot of diehards back into things and help set up the non-makeup era, all credit to Larry Mazur for steering the ship to the point where Doc Doc McGee was able to come in and take them back up to stadiums. So well done, Larry Mazur.
0: We'll be back next week to take a look at Kiss Unplugged.